So this afternoon, Devin and I will be sharing, <clears throat> kind of tag teaming this uh, last full talk, which <laughs> often we refer to as the going home talk, but that doesn't exactly work this time. So we might think of this as the talk for transitioning, guide, guidance and support for transitioning from the formal structure of retreat to the informal structure of retreat that we call daily life, or the how to practice all the time, guidance. So I'm going to start uh, by channeling uh, Tuere and uh, offering you a poem. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear, but the uh, sounds of the world coming in. This is a poem that offers some of the themes that I want to speak a bit to about engaging in our lives in the world, which are letting go and love and faith. So the poem is by Mary Oliver. It's called In Black Water Woods. She writes, look, look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So you may have had a wonderful retreat 
You may have had a stormy and difficult retreat. If you are like most people so far, you've probably had some of all of the above and more. And the one thing that I know for sure is that if you really want to uh, suffer a lot, you can try to hold on to the retreat, to some aspect of insight or uh, a state of consciousness of heart and mind that you may have touched into, that that action of gripping, of trying to get to clinging, to trying to hold what is not holdable is suffering. Joseph Goldstein, I believe it was, talked about this as it's like rope burn. We're trying to hold something and it hurts our hands. And perhaps some of you have seen this in your own direct experience and begun to uh, learn for yourselves to disabuse yourself of the idea that if I just get what I want, if I just get away from what I don't want, well, then I'll be happy. <laughs> it's amazing to me how, um, how deeply I believe that to be true, even though I know better. And yet, of course, we can begin to see for ourselves how this is not a strategy for happiness or peace. This is a strategy for fatigue. And so the encouragement of letting go is not to uh, disregard Letting go is actually not an action. It is simply the not holding on. Just like Tuere was speaking about the other day, that letting go of trying to fix and trying to improve and trying to, it's the same idea. It's not really that we're doing something. It's that we're releasing the grip of a long-held habit. There's an old Zen master who describes this as opening the hand of thought. We don't grab on, we don't push away. And for me, it's a great image, the image of a, a hand and a fist of this is holding and letting go is not so much of a doing something. It's just an opening, an allowing. We don't like it usually much, letting go, allowing. but it is one of the seeds of wisdom that can be planted in the context of a retreat when you can see for yourself how, <laughs> how futile it is. I know this uh, myself from deep personal experience of going on many retreats and then uh, yearning for, chasing after, wanting to get back to something that is no longer here. So I say that with a caveat. And the caveat is that uh, letting go is something that is paired with uh, what I, for, for now, I'm calling love. It's the word we've been speaking about in a variety of ways. And what I mean here by love is 
what Mary Oliver is pointing to, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. That this love that's being pointed to is not so much a, a feeling or emotional state as it is this, the truth of our connectedness. And in the context of a retreat, we can learn for ourselves how it is when we stay very close. We keep our experience, it's, it's very intimate. And how it is that when we allow what's here to be here, that that in itself is an act of love. And as we, as we practice that act of love with ourselves, with our own moment-to-moment -moment experience, that we can begin to feel the, <laughs> the fabric, the connectivity, just as we are intimately connected to each moment, we are intimately connected to each other. So letting go is not just about casting away, disregarding, not caring about, not at all. It's about allowing this moment to pass so that we can be fully present for the next and the next and the next that we can meet what arises. So the encouragement that goes hand in hand with uh, letting go or not holding, not clinging, is to allow yourself to feel whatever it is. You may not even have words for it exactly, but something that has been touched in you. And to let that lead. To find ways in your life to reconnect to, as I spoke about the other day, to remember something deep, something true that isn't someplace else. It's always right here. And so part of the love is to uh, engage in ways in your life that support that not because you're trying to get somewhere else or engage in a self-improvement plan, but because it's true. Because there's something here that is precious and beautiful and that uh, is asking, waiting for your care, your attention. It's like watering the seeds, you know. So please don't hold on, but please do tend, care for, nurture, listen to those places in you that have been woken up that have been touched in some way. And the last piece that I will say that really builds on these first two is um, about faith. It's the first of the five faculties that uh, Tuere spoke about. <laughs> And really what I mean here in this context by faith is the invitation for each of you to trust, to have faith in, uh, you know, whatever it is that brought you here. I'm, I'm going to butcher this uh, thing, but the, it's the thing that you are seeking for is that which is seeking. <laughs> so the thing that whatever it is 
And you may not know exactly, or you may think, oh, I came on this retreat because I thought, I don't know, I read about it or some friend told me about it, or I always come on this retreat. But if we listen more deeply, we can feel that there's something, there's a call, there's a pull, there's a yearning in us to be real, to be true, to be, to remember our deep connectedness. And so to have faith in that, to trust that. In our lives, it shows up. Sometimes it's a whisper. Sometimes, you know, it's somebody in our mind that is yelling, (laughs) come on. But to know that it's good, that call in you, that tug, that pull, that wish to be here, to be connected, to be free. And again, bringing us full cycle to remember that 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 faith, that thing to trust is uh, here. It so amazes me how much uh, the how strong the habit is to step into the next moment to look for whatever it is we think we're seeking. It's just almost a, it's an automatic reflex, you know, where is it? And part of the training in a retreat is to begin to turn that. And instead of where out there, we say where right here and we can tune in and listen. So I'll close with um, another very short little poem from uh, Dogen Zenji, who we've been quoting quite a bit in this retreat. This is his advice to all of us. about how to practice at home. He says it this way. Do not ask me where I am going as I travel this limitless world. This is what happens to us when we're at the end of a retreat or close to the end. We start wondering what's next. How am I going to take it with me? Where am I going right? Do not ask me where I am going as I travel this limitless world. So we may have discovered something surprising here about ourselves, about the world, about reality, because the world is both bigger and smaller. (laughs) The world is not what we think. In his language, it is a limitless world. It is a constantly unfolding, totally alive event. Do not ask me where I am going as I travel this limitless world, where every step I take is home. So as I offered these five guidelines at the beginning for how to practice on retreat, I hope that these words and maybe attitudes for returning to our so-called regular life will also be of support. Remembering to not cling, to to, uh, open the hand, of remembering to listen deeply to this truth that we can discover in ourselves when we touch what is touched, when we listen to love.
and having faith, trusting in the goodness that all of that, all of that is right here in you as you. Thank you, and I will pass to Devin. Oh, I just got this note in the chat from Eugene who said, you are what you seek. That's it. So we're always looking there instead of here. Anyway, please. I don't know how we get Devin on the main screen. I'm here. Maybe if I just speak. There you go. That might work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Pam. So beautiful. As you were talking, I was reminded of the word renunciation, actually. And this, we haven't really spoken so much about renunciation in this retreat, but it's a very foundational principle in practice. Although we might not like the word so much, it has some connotations that might feel scary or too austere, too harsh. And I think in English, the connotation of renunciation is focusing on that, like letting go. What do I have to let go of? But actually the word renunciation in Tibetan has this meaning of Pam's second point. It's a calling forth. It's a leaning into what's already here, and it's a clearing space for something that really matters. What matters the most? And that itself is inspiring, isn't it? So as you've seen over this week, when we simplify, when we commit ourselves in a a way that has integrity, in a responsible way, And in a way that involves renunciation, that involves a clearing out, a making space for. Then there's a lot of room for the Buddha that's here to be seen. So how do we carry on? And maybe what I'll do is offer some specifics. So one of the benefits, as you've seen, of this Zoom format is that you really can train the habits of mind, as you have been doing, in your home environment. And right now, you have a lot of momentum for that. You've been really building again and again. Okay, this is the time to sit many times a day. And this is how I walk mindfully in my home. And this is maybe I've been doing meals a little differently. This is how I incorporate my mindfulness practice into eating. So I encourage you during this very fertile time to use that momentum. You know, sometimes there's so much eagerness and or just the to-do list is calling. And so we kind of, okay, next thing tomorrow when we're done, sort of close everything down, get back into life open the email, there can be a kind of eagerness to tumbling forward into. Even for me, if you, if you notice, I don't know if you do this, but for me, I kind of like jump up off my cushion when I'm done, like, okay, phew, done, next thing. So notice that kind of rush. My, um, my sound just changed. Can you still hear me? Okay, good. Notice when you're tumbling forward, notice the rush, and can you rest back into your practice? And really value your practice as your time of renunciation, of a clearing out so that you can call forth what really matters here. The Buddha said, this is what he said to all of us, What should be done for these disciples out of compassion by a teacher who seeks their welfare and has compassion for them? That I have done for you. There are these roots of trees and these empty huts. 
meditate, disciples. Do not delay or else you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So even in the spin of things and our daily routine, so important to meditate. And you might've heard this a thousand times, but it bears repeating because the discipline is hard, especially when we don't have the accountability of the Sangha. But 10 minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes a day, really important to do the formal practice, to make a space just as you have done. And that carries the momentum. So I'll tell you this story, somewhat personal story. Um, a year ago, exactly, my partner and I entered a period of what we were calling home retreat. And we had set aside this time. Actually, our intention was to do this for three years because he, we had finished a big uh, phase of our life, finished graduate school, PhD was done, had this opportunity to live in a temple here in Ashland and to do a kind of urban retreat where we were still teaching and working part-time, but committed to six hours of practice a day, a formal sitting and walking practice. And then weekend retreats and uh, three months a year of solitary retreat. So that was our commitment to do it for three years. And we began a year ago. And I'll tell you, <laughs> of course, this situation, this sort of commitment we made really founded on a lot of privilege, a lot of good fortune, a lot of support from the Sangha and our own uh, chanda, our own desire or motivation to practice. So it sounded great. We we're gonna practice until 11 every morning, practice again, starting at 6 p.m., silent periods during that time. And then between 11 and five, we would work, but really practice mindful speech with each other. We were on kind of this regular meal program where we weren't eating much dinner, kind of like the eight precepts. Uh, became vegan <laughs> It all these aspirations. And so a year later, and, and we're still in it, and, and one out of three years down, I tell you that I am incredibly humbled that the year I think is summed up really well with, um, this is Suzuki Roshi's translation of Dogen, although I think it's a mistranslation I just learned is that practice is one continuous mistake. That it felt like every day I was somehow failing in my commitment to this schedule. I wasn't supposed to check my phone before 11, but there was some reason why I needed to. Or the draw of this relationship, my best friend from third grade needed to see me and, and I would go out in the evening to see her even though I'd committed to be practicing. It was humbling, so humbling. And to see like, oh, this pull, I want to be doing this practice and the seduction of the world and the current, the tide is strong. There's always some reason why we need to be doing something differently. So I continued to make mistakes all year long. And the learning is deep humility, which I think is very important but also that kind of continuing, like failing and then starting again, and then failing and then waking up again the next day and being like, okay, I'm gonna sit down again and do this again. The repetition, as you've seen in your own practice, the mind wanders, we come back. The mind wanders, we come back. So you might miss a day of practice, you come back. And that is, I think, how, um, at least for me, I can move forward and find that every step is home, even when it feels difficult or maybe even impossible. So really important to find ways in your schedule, in your home environment, where you can simplify, where you can value what's really important to you. Maybe slough off some of the unnecessary and then be really soft and gentle with yourself 
when it's imperfect because it will be probably be a whole lot messier than you want it to be. But I'm really into Marie Kondo. So I kind of think we can do the Marie Kondo method with our closets, but also with our schedules. Does this bring me joy? You know, and really being discerning. This is actually one of the beautiful parts of this year is that so much Dharma is accessible now online. It's amazing, isn't it? And I've heard from many of you that this year has been so deep and profound because of that. You don't have to go to the centers anymore. And yet, if you're anything like me, and if you're a greed type, I'm definitely a greed type, I'm like signing up for this retreat and this retreat and then double, <laughs> double, double taking. Sometimes I've overbooked myself. So I'm supposed to be doing two things online at once. It's terrible. This is Dharma. And yet it's really greedy. <laughs> So naming that, noticing if there is that kind of uh, accumulation, you know, that um, wanting to get more, more, more. Um, yeah, a kind of um, accumulative attitude towards the Dharma. And how do you be discerning about what you engage in online? Sometimes it's helpful just to choose one community or one teacher and just follow what they're doing for a little while deep in that way. And you can go to another center next month, but it can be good just to clarify for yourself. Okay, I wanna check this person out or, or this community, go to a weekly thing for a while, just that. So name the, the sort of, yeah, just acknowledging the deluge in the accessibility and that we have to be discerning in that way too. Ten thousand flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. So that can be a really good question. Is this necessary? Does it bring me joy? I think Marie Kondo teaches us. Hold up the object. Does it bring me joy? And then if not, thanking it, letting go, just as Pam was saying. So important to practice and do it formally every day. And the other side of that coin is that we have the Eightfold Path. The Buddha instructed us in this way of practice that includes eight folds and meditation is only one of them. So this week, we've really been going deep into that particular area, cultivating concentration, cultivating mindfulness in this particular way. And yet there are many ways to practice. And I would argue that some of them in this day and age are very important, if not paramount. So Eightfold Path, right view or wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Three out of the eight are all about being in the world. And then wise effort, wise concentration, wise mindfulness. And so just to say a bit about this, this daily life practice, because we often think of it as secondary. We're really building wisdom and retreat while we sit even in our formal practice. And then the daily life is like, just kind of trying to do my best, <laughs> like maintain. <laughs> and I love this teacher's Burmese um, monk, Sayada Utejaniya, because he flips that coin right around and says, your daily life practice is the most important. So now, right now, as we're entering this retreat, this is actually when the real retreat starts. Notice what happens as you open your inbox. How is your mind as you're engaging with your phone? Mindfulness with our phone is maybe more important than mindfulness with this next breath on the cushion because it's so rife with, uh, with kleshas, really. We get all caught up. Kleshism is the, is the Sanskrit for defilements of the mind, greed, hatred, delusion, you know, all these attitudes, push-pull, self-doubt, insecurity. 
So they're waiting for us in the world. And Saida Utijaniya, he uses this funny metaphor. I guess he likes to watch boxing. He says it's like going out into the world, it's like going into the boxing ring. And we get to kind of duck and, and dodge with all of these potentials for our own reactivity. But it's quite inspiring to me that perspective because we can, we can do it. You can see after this week of practice, you've built some measure of st stability, steadiness. Maybe some softening of your heart. And how interesting is it to bring those qualities to your relations, to your work, maybe to even challenging situations and to value the practice that happens there as you're listening, as you're speaking, as the real practice where the rubber meets the road. It's beautiful Zen saying, where you go off into the mountains to meditate, and then we come down into the marketplace with gift bestowing hands. These are the gifts that you have to offer the world. And so emphasizing continuity of practice, moment to moment, cooking, washing dishes, meeting in a, in a work meeting, talking to friends. How is the mind? How is the mind when you're speaking and listening? This one in particular, I think is difficult because we do this mostly, most of the day, some kind of speaking, even if it's to ourselves. And it's so habitual, we get into a lot of trouble, don't we? How powerful words are, and we see that more and more now, the way all the many, many, many modes of communication, the way that some comment or, you know, these, I don't even know what they're called because I don't engage in them, but all the like comments and things on Facebook and Instagram and things and the debates that kick up and they can have a real impact, right? Whew the harm they can cause. So the Buddha says that we have an ax in our mouths. That's the power of words. Words can destroy, they can break things. And they can also build things. Very powerful. So I highly recommend Orin J. Sofer's book, Say What You Mean. It's all about mindful communication, rereading it yet again. <laughs> Say what you mean. And Oren just offers three basic principles of wise speech. So the first one is lead with presence. It's beautiful, you know, really be present. Deep listening, be in your body, all just the way we've been practicing in the small groups all week. Bring your presence to people. That's already an offering, that's a generosity. And then come from a, an attitude of curiosity and care. How is it to be more interested in the other person than in what you have to say? In some ways, centering the other and their experience. And then the third one, focus on what matters. So this also takes a certain level of clarity in the mind, doesn't it? What really matters most to you? And what's necessary to say? What's not necessary to say? It's a kind of renunciation in wise speech also. I also, I find, this is from Sayadu Utejaniya, but he really recommends um, tuning into an eagerness to speak. Eagerness can drive a lot of conversations. You ever notice how often we're like just kind of interrupting each other? Like assuming we know, we know what the other person is going to say and then we jump right in. Real eagerness. Notice that. And can we just pause? It, it might mean that you're quiet more and that you, have, you get less spare airtime in the conversation. <laughs> we notice that. There's like a lot of crosstalk and I'm just like, I'm kind of eager to talk, but I'm just watching it. <laughs> so it can be fun. You know, we sort of laugh at ourselves, laugh at others. Yeah, wise speech, really important. 
So I'm really curious what Pamela has to say about this piece. I um, I wanted to touch on relationships as well, but maybe what I'll do is just pause because I've already said a lot and uh, we wanted to kind of have a conversation here. So we'll, we'll, I'll put a pin in the relationships piece. Hopefully we'll get to that and uh, turn it back over to see what you have to say, Pam. Well, the thing that... Um that comes up when you talk about the relationships piece is that that's the heart of the whole practice. That if we understand that what we've been doing here is uh, learning to cultivate a wise, skillful, kind, creative, alive, relationship with our moment-to-moment experience, we think that what we're up to is trying to change our experience. What we see on retreat is that we're, we're learning how to have a different relationship to our experience. And that relational piece is the, it's the piece we often don't see. And that's what translates out in my experience. That if I can learn to be more curious, more patient, more kind with my own eagerness, say, then I can also be more patient, more curious, more kind with other people. And, you know, we all know how annoying people are. (laughs) Um, So I I meant that as a joke. I hope that was clear. Um, people aren't what we expect them to be. And so it's that relational piece that for me is really at the, at the heart of it. And I guess well, there's a few yeah, and let me just say, let me toss it back, Devin, to see if there's more you want to say about the relationship piece. I mean, I think uh, all of you know you, you, now, Eugene and I have been in relationship for a long time. And uh, so there's something that I think is important when you come off of a, the container of retreat, which is this recognition that you may well be much more tender than you know. Um, so both what you say and also what is said may, may land, you know, in a much more tender place in you so that it doesn't, um, it's just the same to, to take care, not to be careful, but to be caring as you begin to engage in relationships with other people and the world. So. Please. Beautiful. It's such a beautiful frame that the entirety of the practice is just about relationship. Relationship to ourselves, relationship to others, relationship to the world. Gil Fransdahl has this frame that the entirety of the path is ethics. It's sila. And I think that also relates. You know, how do we refine and learn through and about and then polish our integrity to ourselves, to others, and to the world. So that can feel like heavy and serious and hard. But this is what, um, I love this instruction. This is what Dilgo Kense Rinpoche has to say. He's a Dzogchen master, a really beloved teacher. So what he says, the everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations, to all emotions, and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and blockages so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy, an energy that Tuari is talking about, a tremendous energy which is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and in general, running away from life experiences. 
So this, and this is from a longer piece. I really encourage you to look it up. He's a great teacher about everyday practice, like this complete, uh, like without abandon, this complete acceptance and openness in all situations to all people. (laughs) Such a high bar, really, isn't it? But it's inspiring to me because being around teachers who have cultivated this attitude, you feel it. You feel that they've let go of that preoccupation with self-concern and there's all this energy available for you or for what's going to happen next and for the world. And I'm sure you feel that even now after having practiced straight for some days, there's more availability, there's more resourcefulness, there's more spaciousness, like, okay, right? We're practicing receptivity. So I think that's good instruction for relationship. And I also think, um, I mean, we've been talking so much about love and someone in my small group today asked a great question about romantic love. And I'll just repeat this. So my, my small group, my apologies, you're hearing this again. But um, I love this sort of this guideline to look at how each relationship in our lives, actually the foundation of it is what I would call bodhicitta. Right, this awakened heart that cares for, that appreciates, that kind of like when you're first falling in love with somebody and you're curious about them and you want to know everything about them, that kind of open-hearted tenderness is the foundation for human relation, relationships. And so to use that as your barometer, notice when is that really alive with another person? And notice how that relationship, that bodhicitta then, that spreads out. It benefits not only you and the other person, but it also is an offering to the world. And there, there might be some relationships in your life where that bodhicitta is a little bit less obvious. And that's something to look at. Are there ways you can tap back into the bodhicitta? Or maybe this, is this a friendship or a relationship that doesn't necessarily need your energy right now? Because it's not feeding that, that same kind of aliveness the falling in love, that's a, the open-hearted tenderness. So it's a good kind of, yeah, barometer, a litmus test to kind of go in and see the bodhicitta there in your connections with people and trust it. Trust that it's beneficial for you, for them, for everyone else. And then see how the entirety of the practice is that how to cultivate and notice and grow bodhicitta. So I'm going to offer um, just another take on this open-heartedness. It's coming as Devin, as you're speaking, as a a memory of a, a story of a time when I was a young Zen student in a intensive period of practice And at the end of the period of practice, there was a ceremony in which everyone got to ask a question. And we will have some time tomorrow in our closing ceremony for you to get to ask your questions about transitioning back into your informal retreat. Um, But this story is coming to mind. And in this ceremony, there was a young man who asked, came forward and asked the teacher, how do I keep my heart open as I leave this kind of protected environment? And I've heard similar kinds of questions that came up in some of the small groups today, and it's a common question people ask. And uh, in the ceremony, the teacher lifted his hand, and he made a fist, and he asked the man a the, the the guy who was asking him the question, a question in return, he said, is this a heart? And the guy said, no. And then he opened his hand wide and said, is this a heart? And the guy said, no. And the teacher said, right, this is a heart. So this generosity and kindness that we have to ourselves is really this willingness to be with what is, what's true, is sometimes the heart's open, sometimes the heart's closed. 
We, our life is that. And the invitation when we're on retreat and when we leave retreat is to be with all of it. To meet what's here as it is. Um, I have two more things to say, if that's okay, Devin. Yeah. So one is um, in the spirit of um, sort of practicality and tips. I'm going to borrow this a page from from uh, Eugene. And uh, there are a few key things that I think are really useful that are you could think of as just tips for re-entering your life. And here they are. The first, don't read all your email at once. I cannot tell you how many times I have messed this one up. <laughs> so I'm offering this to you from the ouch of having experienced what it's like when you have built some concentration, you have all this capacity, and then whoop, down the email tube you go. That's one. The second is uh, that when people ask you, particularly people who don't necessarily know about practice, you've gone off to do this retreat and maybe they're meditators or maybe they're not. And when they ask you how the retreat was, say it was good. If you, if there are people in your life who you feel understand, know something about meditative practice, then maybe you say a little more. But the important thing is to know that as we uh, shift the container, the space of the retreat, the true retreat is still alive in you. And if you start trying to explain and articulate and <laughs> put in a box, here's what happened, not only will it not likely, be, will it very be very unlikely that it's helpful to someone else, but it's actually not, it's not a kind thing to do to yourself. And particularly not to try to talk about the, the deepest thing, the most important thing. Know that that's still in you. It's still moving and growing. So keeping it simple in that way. And the third thing I would say is that to the degree that you feel some sense of illumination, of excitement, of insight, of inspiration, please go right ahead and find your next retreat and put it on your calendar. <laughs> because now's a good time to do that before the 10,000 other things that seem really important uh, flood in and become many, many things to do in your schedule. So that's um, just three kind of practical pieces. And the last thing that I want to say, and it's been implicit, I think, in both in what Devin and I have both been talking about, but just to say, to acknowledge that we have, we've been in quite a kind of precious and refined space, even virtual. And the world, our world is as Devin spoke about from quoting Pascal from some years ago, we live in a, in a very difficult, divisive, aching world. So that's both to say, please take good care of your tenderness, the sensitivity that's in you, but also to say that the world, our world needs us that all of this that we have been doing is not just, you know, as they say, navel-gazing, that we have together, individually, collectively, been cultivating a capacity to be with difficult experience, as well as wonderful experience, but difficult in particular, that is so deeply needed to address the enormity of the issues that we're facing today. And I don't say that, that Therefore, you should go do whatever. The world needs each of us in our unique expression of our being to 
be ourselves and to be ourselves in a way that we are in relationship with ourselves and each other from a place of care, from a place of love. So maybe for me, that's the, a, a good place to stop. Do you wanna add? Yes, I just have two small things to add, which is true. What, what Pam says is true. If ever the world needed people, that would be you. <laughs> We've been cultivating the qualities that the world needs so badly now. And so don't underestimate yourselves. You know, I think in all of this talk about renunciation and simplifying and supporting the conditions for practice at home, it can feel like, ah, okay, the world intends. I feel like that a lot. But there's this attitude also, I think, of the bodhisattva warrior. As you've seen in your heart and mind, this takes work. This is not for the faint of heart. And so you have a growing resilience. You have the ability to be with what's difficult. The world is going to offer that again and again and again. And there's this kind of uh, like diving right into the mess, I think, that is a, one of the many paradoxes of the Dharma. That yes, we need to be careful and care and, and tend these tender hearts and really create conditions that support for sure. And this term full catastrophe living, you know, this uh, open-hearted abandon, like let it all in, see what comes. You can do it, you got it. That attitude, like Tuari was saying, it's okay. <laughs> you know, I'm a grown up. I can deal with whatever happens. That kind of confidence. This is the faith that Pam's talking about too, I think. Trusting yourself, trusting your practice. So it's been a very hard year. Look at the resilience that's grown. Look at the wisdom that's here that wasn't here a year ago. So yeah, I'm saying this to myself and to all of you, and we all need to do it together. Like, yes, we got this. <laughs> We're gonna keep going alone and together. Yeah. So just a few words from Dogen because they remind me of what Pam's been saying. So he says, when transmitted from Buddha to Buddha, the mark is self-joyous meditation. So how is that every day at home to practice self-joyous meditation? Though each one has Buddha nature in abundance, they cannot make it appear without practice or live it without enlightenment. If you let it go, it fills your hand. It transcends the one and the many. If you talk about it, it fills your mouth. It is beyond measurement by height and width. All Buddhas eternally have their abode here. Just like every step being home. So this is already where we are. Can't go anywhere else. And so let's find the freedom and the joy and the goodness right here. Okay, so Pam, since we're tag teaming, this is what I think we should do. I have a poem, one more. <laughs> You're getting inundated by poems. But this is Joy Harjo, who you learned, who you heard from, from Tuary. Really amazing, wonderful poet laureate, um, indigenous woman, I think from the Pacific Northwest in this area. So Pam, if I read the poem, will you ring the bell? Great, okay. So this is called Remember by Joy Harjo. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of the stars' stories. Remember the moon and know who the moon is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn. That is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of your mother's life and your mother's mother's life and their mother's. 
Remember your father. Your father is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are, red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth. We are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them, listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind. Remember the wind's voice. The wind knows the origin of this universe. Remember you are all people and all people are you. Remember you are this universe and this universe is you. Remember all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember language comes from this. Remember the dance language is. Remember that life is. Remember. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.